So what I want to do this weekend is I want to talk, the series is called Being Adventist, and I'll tell you where I'm going with it after we pray. So let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into tonight's topic. <clears throat> Gracious Father in heaven, I do thank you so much for um, your word of truth, and Father, for your faithful people the world over, uh, for those who have come tonight, for those who will be uh, watching, who couldn't be here, for those who will listen and tune into this later, I pray that what's presented here may be something that would, would give us a, a, a inspiration and also, Lord, uh, clarity and purpose and resolve for the role you've called us to as a church at this time in earth's history. I pray that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, would give us an understanding not just a theoretical understanding, but a practical understanding in your truth, for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, being Adventist, I, I initially I put this series together. There's a few reasons why I, I chose to do what I'm doing this weekend. And it's morphed quite a bit as I've processed it, and it may morph later on as well. You're getting this kind of new thought process of, oh, it's not a new thought process of mine. There are a few things that prompted what I'm sharing tonight. Number one, my own experience growing up in the church and out of the church. Uh, if some of you who have heard me speak before know that my, my mother and father were first-generation Seventh-day Adventists. They received Bible studies and came into the Seventh-day Adventist church. My mom and dad got divorced, and I moved in with my, uh, well, I lived with my mom part of the time, and my dad part of the time, but my mom and my stepdad ended up leaving the Seventh Avenue Church during the Desmond Ford crisis, and that was about the time I was 15 years old, all the way to the time I was about 26 years old. And so I had that experience growing up in the church, going to Seventh Avenue Church School. My brother was in the academy, never went to academy, ended up going to public high school myself. And so that time in the church and out of the church. And that experience, you'll understand as I go a little bit further, uh, my own experience in the church and out of the church, why I chose to join the Adventist church later on in my 20s, because I looked at other churches, and why I'm still here. That's one of the reasons that prompted this evening's message. The second thing is the narrative in the church for the last several decades, and this is my perspective, that has attributed all the current problems in the church to the once widely held belief system of traditional Adventism. And I'll explain when that narrative is as we go on, and you'll know more about what I'm talking about. But that narrative, which I believe is a false narrative that's been carried on for decades and has done irreparable harm to our church, is one of the reasons I'm speaking on what I'm speaking on this weekend. And finally, the effect of this false narrative on my own grown children. I have a son who is 25 years old and a daughter who is 18 years old. They grow up so fast. I get to their at the ages now. It's like, wait a minute, where was the birthdays? And they're, they're both due for birthdays. My, my son is in law school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. My daughter is in her freshman year at Southern Adventist University. Um, so they're grown up. They're out of the house now. And, you know, they're at a point in their life where they're really having to grapple with personal decisions. And it's different growing up with a religious belief system. And then when you've got to make it your own, there's something. And, um, the effect of this false narrative on my own grown children and their or some of your generation. Uh, those are the things that have prompted 
what I'm sharing this evening. So I want to start with what I'm calling a false narrative. Uh, Pastor Cameron DeVager, who I work with, uh, has called this, this narrative, this story, the Third Reich of Adventism. <clears throat> this is the Adventism I've been hearing horror stories about since I was baptized in 1994. And I'll give you more on that later. To give a practical example, so you know a little bit about what I'm getting into here, I want to share a part of an article that was written by a prominent Adventist pastor who at the time of the article was the editor of the NAD Best Practices newsletter. Best Practices was a newsletter for pastors. Now, I'm telling you that to say that to share a quote is like, yeah, some guy off on the fringe somewhere thought something sometime. This is somebody who was writing regularly with this mindset to give pastors, Adventist pastors, the best practices for ministry. When you're in that position, what you say has a widespread influence. Okay, just to give you an idea. <clears throat> and, and so this is a piece of what he said in this particular blog article. This is a blog article from Spectrum Magazine, October 2014. Now, he was responding to a book, and there's so much I can't say, <laughs> from, just from a standpoint of time, but there was a book that was um, defending last generation theology. And last generation theology, I've spoken here before, it's a term I don't like. It's, it's, it's a term coined by people who don't believe in whatever they're calling last generation theology. And so it, when you have a title like that, and I've spoken on this before, there's all kinds of, you, once you, once you affix a label to something, then there's all kinds of things that just kind of get sucked into that label. And so then people say, hey, do you believe, and, and if, if you don't know the label, and somebody says, hey, do you believe that we can overcome sin before Jesus comes? And you're like, well, yeah, I think that's what the Bible teaches. Well, you believe in last generation theology. Oh, okay, I guess. If you don't know any better, and then what happened is you just got lumped into this whole package of whatever. I don't even like to use the term because I just don't like um, all the appendages that can be added to it. But this particular, and this is one of the examples. So there was a book that was trying to defend last generation theology. So this is a book review, I believe, an editorial that was written by this minister. And this is what he says in this little piece of a quote. The Seventh-day Adventist church of my childhood was so legalistic that people were gasping for any breath of hope that there was more to their faith than a lifetime of stern, joyless hypocrisy died even darker with the terror of imminent eschatological collapse. In other words, last day events, it's, my, my religious experience, it was joyless. It was so legalistic. There was no breath of hope. And on top of that, there was all this talk about the end times, Jesus coming, and everybody's going to get wiped out, right? Imminent eschatological end times, last day, what that means, collapse, and with no assurance of salvation at the end of it. So all that you had to endure, and, and still there was no hope of salvation. That was the Adventism, he says, I grew up with. And he, con he, fin he concludes by saying the old Adventism collapsed, not because of uh, questions on doctrine, 
Oh, so the book, the book was not, this book was not on last generation theology, but it was on questions on doctrine, some of the history there. And so his response, of course, the implication, not the implication, the explicit statement in the, in the, I guess the book itself was making the point that questions on doctrine made an impact in our theological teachings. And his response is something needed to, because our teachings were so bad. And this was the net effect of, this is what I went through, this stern, legalistic, um, joyless experience. Now I shared this particular quote. I could share a hundred like it. I share this quote because it's representative of the narrative. When I say the narrative, I'm talking about this picture that's painted of what Adventism was. And that was the picture right there. And I share that quote not because it's isolated, but because it's representative. Throughout my ministry, anytime I share a quote like, like this in a big crowd, inevitably somebody comes up and says, Pastor, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it was, rather. That's how it was when I grew up in the church. So a lot of people resonate with that. And um, to this very day, as I've mentioned, this dark age of the church is cited as the reason for every problem that currently exists in the church, kind of like the Trump presidency. Now, personally, I am nonpartisan, okay? <laughs> so I don't want to, I'm not having a political discussion, but it's interesting to me today how every problem that exists has to be attributed to the last guy. And the next guy always does that to the last guy. But there are things in the Seventh-day Adventist church it seems that every problem in the church, and maybe this is just more in the level of administration. And when I say administration, I mean pastors, teachers, professors, theology professors, seminary. The bulk of what, in fact, the, the, the Seventh Avenue Seminary released a book called God's Character. Uh, it's been a couple of years now. And, you know, they were, they were rebutting what's called last generation theology. And that book has got far and wide. I remember being at, where was I? It was an NAD ministerial, uh, it was an NAD personal ministries weekend. And we were having a meeting and a guy came in and he held that book up and he's like, everybody needs to get this book and read this book. Well, I got the book, I read the book. And what's funny to me is in, in many of the chapters, when a person would say, you know, and there, there are a lot of straw men arguments in the book. I hate to say it, but a person would say for proof, I know this is all true because, and they would give their testimony of their experience growing up in the legalistic, joyless church because of the, our doctrines, because of the way the church was, you know, so stringent about lifestyle issues and things like that. And I always get that response that, yes, that was my experience too from somebody. And so this is the reason why the young people are out of the church today. This is the reason why evangelism doesn't work today. This is why our members have no assurance of salvation today. This is why our schools are struggling for funds and enrollment today. And any other challenge and every other challenge that exists in our church today is because of this third Reich of Adventism. So here's my dilemma. This era, and, and, and just to be clear, this is the... You know, this particular pastor who wrote the article and many of those who, whether they be from the seminary or whatever, who have weighed in and said, yeah, this is what the church is like, they're my generation. They're the generation that's in leadership in the church. 
They're the generation who hold responsible offices in the NAD and the GC and what have you, many of them. And as I said, it's, it's the generation I grew up in. So here's my dilemma. I was in the church. Now I was, I was, I, I should say I was in the vicinity because I never got baptized. My family left the church and it wasn't until my mid twenties, but I grew up, I was going to Seventh-day Adventist schools. I was going to Seventh-day Adventist churches. I was in the church at the same time these other folks were, at the same time these stories, these alleged experiences took place to them, this hard grinding Adventism. And I saw some crazy things in those days, no crazier than I've seen today as a pastor going around. There's always going to be a little crazy in the church. It's just, I, I love what Doug Bachelor says. The problem, you know what the problem with the church is? There's people in it. And so you're always going to have challenges when you have people in something. We all have our shortcomings and whatever. And, I've, and I, there have been some serious problems in the church in the past. But I'm going to address why I think that is and what it has to do with us today. So I've seen some crazy things in the church. But what I did not see is the church described in these stories. Over and over again, I hear these stories, and I think, I was in the church, what happened? And I joke with Pastor Cameron, I say, they must have, when I went to grade school, they must have waited until I went out to recess to start the interrogations of the, you know, the whatever students are having these experiences while I was gone. Or the pastor must have waited for the week my family missed to give the real fire and brimstone shot or whatever. You know, in other words, why, if this was so prevalent in Adventism, when I go back and I read books from that era, I'm not seeing it the same way. When I lived through it myself, I didn't get the same perception. How did I escape it if it was this all-absorbing, all-overwhelming, smothering atmosphere of Adventism? Yet, as I've mentioned, there's no shortage of testimonies of eyewitnesses to this horrible chapter in Adventist history. And as I've pondered this over the years, I've come to the conclusion that I will be sharing this weekend as a reflect on my own experience of being Adventist. That's this weekend's topic, being Adventist. Tonight's title is Born Adventist or Born Again. Born Adventist or Born Again. Now, when people talk about the bad old days of Adventism, back when we used to be so strict, back when we used to, you know, lifestyle issues, I mean, most people understand that there's, if you have any knowledge of Adventism, that there's more flexibility in Adventist lifestyle today than there was at one time. I'll, I'll reflect on that in a little bit. But when people talk about the old days of Adventism, the word that comes up over and over again is legalism. Now, I have a problem with the word legalism, and this is why. Because I fear that most Christians have a little concept. Most Adventists have little concept what they're talking about when they use the word legalism. For example, legalism is often used synonymously with careful obedience. Careful obedience is not legalism. Legalism is also used to describe Christians with conservative values. The more conservative you are, the more legalistic you might be. Legalism, the root word is legal. The whole concept of legalism is the belief that you think by your obedience to the law or legal requirements, by doing that, you're earning God's favor and you're earning your salvation. But some of the most faithful, particular people in the Bible didn't think they were earning their salvation. So as I said, careful obedience, in fact, 
we just had a, a, a Sabbath school quarterly not too long ago on Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a book that over and over it says, be careful to observe, be careful to observe, be careful. Well, it was Moses hammering the people with legalism. Some would say so. Our evangelical friends would. <laughs> it's a shame when Adventists have started picking up that argument, we ought to know better. But as I said, legalism is a word that I think people don't understand as well. Used of careful obedience, that's not legalism. It's used to describe Christians with conservative values. That's not legalism. Neither of those are legalism. It's never used in connection with a more liberal approach to the church. I don't know if you've noticed that. If a person is, is more, you know, for example, if a person may say, in fact, I have a, a, a real-life example. There was a person who my brother baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church. And she had some of her, she was not an Adventist, her non-Adventist friends had said, hey, look, that whole Sabbath keeping thing, be careful because you're going to become a legalist. And legalism was the idea that you're going to be extra careful doing what God asks you to do to the point that she decided when it came to returning tithe, she would be safer returning 8% than 10% because 10% was exact. And that could be legalistic. And so 8% couldn't be legalistic because it wasn't exact. Now, that, may, that should seem and sound funny, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of Adventists who, who if, if truth be told, things get more relaxed. And you say, you're, you know, when you start talking about paying a faithful tithe, you talk about going, you know, not skipping prayer meeting and going out witnessing and, and, and you know, dressing appropriately and eating the right way, and that's all legalism. But if you relax those standards, the idea is now that's, that's not legalism anymore. A lot of people don't realize that there's as much legalism on the liberal side as the conservative side. There are Sunday keepers whose whole religion would be a legalistic religion. Like, how could it be they're not keeping the Sabbath? They don't worry about keeping the law. Because when you ask them why they do what they do, and when you ask them why they think they're going to go to heaven, they'll say, well, I live a pretty good life. I do my best to be a good person. What does that mean? How are they getting to heaven? Their own good works. That's legalism. It doesn't matter. How, so if, I, if my mindset is I'm going to keep the Sabbath so carefully that it's going to get me into heaven, that's legalism. But if my mindset is I'm going to go down and help the people at the soup kitchen every week and not worry about keeping the Sabbath, that's also legalism. So instead of using the word legalism, I prefer the word formalism. Formalism is described by the dictionary as the use of forms of worship without regard to inner significance. In other words, going through the motions. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 3.5 when he talks about how there are those in the last days who have the form of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. They go through the motions. That's what... When you, go, when you think in the Bible of the legalists in the Bible, who comes to mind? New Testament church, who are the legalists in the New Testament church? Pharisees. I mean, anybody would get that right, right? Oh, it's the Pharisees. What was it about the Pharisees' religion? We say they were so particular. Not entirely true. Go to Matthew 23 with me. One of the clearest verses on the Pharisees, and one we just, I guess, read over when Jesus gives this 
clear denunciation of the practices of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, we'll look at verse 23. Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, what? Hypocrites. Greek word, hypocrites. It means an actor, a, a play actor, right? In other words, <laughs> right from the get-go, whatever they're doing is not genuine and sincere. And I'll tell you, if somebody's strict obedience isn't sincere, it's not as strict as it may you may think it is, because whenever they're only doing it to show people, and if nobody else is around, guess what? not so strict anymore. But he goes on to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving what? They evidently were leaving something undone. So they weren't as all particular as to include judgment and mercy and faith. You understand what I'm saying? But their religion was a formal religion. It was an outward religion. It was a religion to be seen by others. They were just going through the motions. Now, with that little background, I want to give you a couple practical examples of what I'm talking about, because what we're talking about this evening could come very close to home in the experience of any Christian. Formalism is something that creeps into the life of a Christian. It's very easy to be lulled into a carnal security where you go through motions in church and you've lost the passion that perhaps you once had. It's the, exa- the, the very uh, problem with the church of Ephesus and Revelation. You've, left, you've lost your first love. So a couple of exa- uh, practical examples. This is a testimony that I'm going to share with you of a self-proclaimed fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist who left the Adventist church. Now, I I took this testimony from a magazine called Proclamation. Proclamation magazine was a magazine that was put together by people, former Adventists. And and to reach Adventists and draw them out of the Adventist church when they realized what a sham the Adventist church was. And this is a woman who had left the Adventist church, fourth-generation, and she gives her testimony. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying because you've got to put your thinking cap on. There's a lot of these things people hear. Let me say this too. If you've ever been at odds with the church, it's very easy to believe negative talk about the church. If somebody comes and says, yeah, I went through the Adventist church and da 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 if you ever had a situation where you were reproved by a pastor or you had a, you know, a, a discipline issue or you guess where you're going to tend to want to go. Now, I'm not saying that that necessarily happens, but I'm just saying there are a lot of people who resonate with some of these stories because they themselves, maybe it wasn't an issue they had openly with the church, but I've encountered a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who have questions because they never owned their own religion. And, and we're going to get to that this evening. Now, listen carefully. This is just a piece of her testimony. She says, I knew religion. I knew about the seven-day Sabbath. And I knew about our Sabbath rules and Ellen G. White. I knew about the state of the dead. I knew so many things associated with the Seventh-day Adventist religion. But I did not know who Jesus is. It was my fault that I did not know Jesus. But I was a loyal Adventist and never thought to make an in-depth, intellectually honest study of the religion and how it measures up to the Bible. 
course, she goes on in testimony saying that she, she began to study and studied herself out of the church. But I want to take that first section. Did anybody, as you were listening to that, did there were any flags? When you're trying to, you know, and I'm not going to question the sincerity of the person, but when a person says, hey, look, I knew religion. I knew about our Sabbath rules. But I never personally studied anything myself. What does that tell you? Yeah, it, it, it can't be anything else but formalism. If you've never studied your religion for yourself and all it is is what you've been taught, all you have, all you can have is formalism. And she says, I didn't know, you know, I knew this Adventist stuff in the religion, but I didn't know who Jesus is. It was my fault, but I was a loyal Adventist and never thought to make an in-depth, intellectually honest study of the religion and how it measures up to the Bible. Folks, if you've never studied the Bible and compared Adventism to the Bible, you're not a loyal Adventist. Adventism by its very nature is a religion unlike other religions that takes the Bible as its creed. If you've never looked at the Bible, it's like, well, we keep the Sabbath and we don't do this and we do this. and that. I have no idea why, but it's what I learned in church school. Your experience is going to be a formalistic experience. And there are a lot of people who grow up in the church that way and they're happy with it. Now, some people like this leave the church, and, and, and the guy that wrote the article in the beginning, he, he complained about his childhood, but there are other people that are pleased as punch to grow up that way until something comes in life to challenge it, and you've got no foundation. If by loyal Adventist, you simply mean you blindly follow cultural norms instead of personally knowing Jesus, then your religious experience can only be formal. Listen to Ellen White, how she describes this experience in the book Steps to Christ. This is page 44 of Steps to Christ. She says, those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirement of God, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer those who feel the constraining love of God. She continues, a profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Now that word drudgery, it's interesting. The word drudgery means hard menial labor. It means that by itself. And then she adds the adjective heavy, <laughs> hard menial labor. And it's really hard. Well, I'm going to expound on that a little bit, but that's, if you don't have a love for Jesus, the love for Jesus is the only thing that creates a love for spiritual things. I'll get on to that. I don't want to say too much about that. We're getting there. Okay. According to this statement that in Steps to Christ, what is the experience of someone in the best church experience who lacks a personal relationship with Christ? Let me re-ask that question. You know, so when the article at the beginning said the church I grew up in, et cetera, et cetera, well, you could say, well, there are mean people in that church. Maybe that was an exceptionally bad church. The people were exceptionally selfish or legalistic or whatever else. But according to the statement in Steps to Christ, 
if you were to take the best of Adventist churches that you could, and a person grew up in that best of churches where the people were the most loving, Christ-centered, balanced, everything else, but that person did not himself or herself have their own commitment to Christ, what would their religious experience look like? A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. I don't care how loving the church is. Christ is the one who makes the experience worthwhile. And so, it, you know, we, people want to throw stones at, well, the church was so, wouldn't it matter? If you had a love for Christ, he would have brightened it. Some of you may remember reading Ellen White's testimony when she was first converted. And she was walking by a construction site. And the workmen, it, from the best I can figure from what she says, were using colorful language, probably using the Lord's name in vain. I say that because Ellen White looks to her mother and she says, Mother, do you hear those men praising God? I don't know if you, uh, it doesn't seem like maybe you've read that. Go back and read that Testimonies Volume 1 and that experience, or maybe haven't read it in a while. So she, she noticed when she was converted, the sound of the birds singing, everything was brighter and happier, even to the point where the construction workers were sounding like they weren't praising God. It's clear from the passage, but her perspective on everything was more positive. But when you don't have that love for Christ, it doesn't matter the situation you're in. You're going to, this is, Inspiration tells us that the religious experience is going to be mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Again, the religious experience could be nothing but formalism. So this witness here, this lady continues in this uh, testimony. She says, our family worship was not a consistent or important part of our family life. The only consistent part of our spiritual life was keeping the Sabbath and going to church. So we didn't have regular family worship. Now, I don't want to be critical of a person who goes through this. And, and again, I don't know the woman. I don't know her sincerity, but I can tell you this. You can't put a lot of credibility. Here's a person who says, yeah, the church, man, it was. Just, I didn't know Jesus. Uh, I was a loyal Adventist, all these rules and all this legalism. Oh, but by the way, I never really spent personal devotional time. We didn't have family worship. Well, then you're describing the fruit of formalism. She says, we learned our religion in school. And then she talks about when the children, she got married and her children were young. She says, we, her husband and her, decided it would be best if we attended church more regularly. Read between the lines. So I'm not going to church regularly, not having family. Just a couple lines before it said the only consistent part of spiritual life was keeping the Sabbath and going to church. Perhaps that was speaking of the childhood. And then when she got older, she stopped going. But you're not going to have a vibrant experience. That's going to, that's going to color your religious experience. And, you know, you may be connecting the dots here and seeing that. And I'll expound on this a little bit further in a moment. But I fear that many of these stories about the Third Reich of Adventism come from an experience in formalism and have little to do with Adventism. Why is that important? I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, the second testimony I want to share with you is actually was actually found in the comment section of the blog article I started out with. 
So a person read that article of the church in its days when it was draw. It was uh, how did he describe it again? Let me go back. The um, people that was so legalistic that people were gasping for any breath of hope that there was more to their faith in a lifetime of stern, joyless hypocrisy, died even darker with the terror of imminent eschatological collapse, no assurance of salvation at the end of it. So this person reads that and comments in the comments section. And again, I'm sharing it because I think it's representative. This is what the person writes. I believe the author is right. I grew up in a church where any kind of LGT was considered heresy. And he brought that a little that up in the article, but um, I just want you to get the flavor of this testimony. I remember a sermon where someone explained that the term remnant, remnant church is not a biblical term and not even a logical term, since nobody is automatically a remnant Christian just by belonging to a certain church. And there are remnants in more than one church. 1844 was explained to me once when I was about 14 years old, and after that, never mentioned again in any sermon I heard, which of course convinced me of its lesser importance. In my youth, we heard very good preachers like Morris Venden, who reminded us that wearing jeans was okay, as long as we didn't adopt the jeans moral, which was then defined as a very worldly attitude. Now, maybe I should pause here and interject. I told you I saw crazy things growing up. I remember when I was going to Adventist grade school, my brother was going to Adventist Academy and dress code policy did not allow for jeans because people who wore jeans were not good students. And there were studies evidently that somebody had done. And so it was all corduroys. And I mean, it was a, it became a joke afterward. You know, you can hear a person coming a mile away in corduroys. And I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember that. But so there were some things that were, to me, again, these, these even these, some of these, these rules that we had, were born of formalism, which I'll talk about in a minute. So I'm not saying that there weren't issues and problems, but it's interesting, again, listening to this particular testimony. In my youth, we heard very good preachers tell us, reminded us genes were okay as long as we didn't adopt the genes moral. Our relationship to, our relationship to Jesus is what counts. This person goes on to say, that was preached over and over again. We were Adventists nevertheless. We had no problem of identity. Now we hear from some leaders that our identity is in danger if we don't go back to the legalistic, joyless church that has obviously existed before we were born. Now, I'm just sharing that little piece. First of all, just, again, reviewing a couple things in the testimony. When it started out and said... Um, I remember a sermon where somebody explained the term remnant church is not a biblical term. What does biblical mean? What is the word found in the Bible? Does the word remnant appear in the Bible? You're going to let some pastor or preacher come up and tell you that something's not a biblical word and walk away saying, hey, I guess it's not a biblical word when it's right there in the Bible. This is just this whole several things in this thing. Oh, it's another yet another example of just formalism. And the Lord willing, he'll see where one of the big challenges is, is with that. But uh, this person talks about the uh, somebody explained this thing about the remnant church. It's not a biblical term. Well, that's just saying that I got my religion from somebody else. 
Okay, that's what it's telling us. 1844 was explained once, and I never heard about it again, which told me it was unimportant. Again, I'm waiting for somebody else to do all my teaching. And when it's all said and done, we were Adventists nonetheless. We had no problem with identity. You don't believe remnant applies to Seventh-day Adventist Church? You don't believe in 1844 that it's important? And you have no identity problem as an Adventist? I mean, this is just steeped in formalism. And it's tragic. So I want to turn our attention to the underlying problem, which is not being born Adventist, which is not being born in this terrible era here, there, elsewhere. It's, the problem is not being born Adventist. The problem is, that's it, my wording here is, the, the problem is not being born Adventist. The problem is not being born again. I shouldn't have used the knots there, the way that it goes. But the real problem is conversion, as, as I think it will become clear in a moment. See, the Bible teaches that before a person comes to Christ, that person has a very different outlook on spiritual things. Isn't that true? 1 Corinthians 2.14, let's look this one up. A couple passages that I want to see here quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Very well-known passage of scripture, but one we need to review again this evening. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually understood. What this is telling us is that before a person is converted, Spiritual things seem foolish. Spiritual rules, spiritual society, spiritual cultures, if those things truly are spiritual and biblical, they're not what you desire when you're not spiritual. That's what the Bible tells us there. 2 Corinthians, we're in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14. Now, this is a great passage, but we're zeroing in on a little part. The Apostle Paul is commenting on Moses coming down from the mountain in the presence of God when he had to put a veil over his face to hide the glory that was on his face um, from the uh, people of Israel who could not look at that glory. But look at verse 14. Now, he makes a spiritual application. He says, but their what? Not their eyes. Their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is what? Taken away in Christ. What the apostle saying is the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's speaking of the Jewish people who had not accepted Christ as the Messiah. And so when they read the Bible, they read it from an entirely different perspective. There was a veil over their hearts and over their minds. They couldn't see the reality of the truth. And what they took away from it was not at all what God intended. Because that's how unspiritual people view spiritual truth. Now, we all know that. If you've ever tried to witness to somebody who isn't open to spiritual things, ah, they're not interested. The problem that we run into, I fear, is that we forget that nobody in the church is born converted. 
The old saying, you know the old saying, God doesn't have grandchildren. You're not born again because mom and dad chose to be born again. It has to be a personal choice. And if you've not made the personal choice, then spiritual things are foolishness to you. Then there is a veil on anything spiritual. And your takeaway, when you see a spiritual rule or a spiritual, any kind of spiritual construct, is to, you're going to see that from a carnal perspective. So let's assume now that a person is born Adventist, but not born again. You grow up in the church, but you've not made your own experience, uh, committed your life to Christ, had your own experience with Christ. According to these passages we just looked at, what kind of experience must we assume that person's going to have? It's the experience of the natural man. You're that person who grows up in the church. Let me explain a little bit further. The problem with growing up in the church, and this is not exclusive with Adventists, by the way, but it's a lot harder. (laughs) I always tell people, if you're going to play church, don't play church in the Adventist church. Many of the churches today, in fact, the the reality that a lot of Adventists don't understand is, you know, Adventists are more particular about following the scripture than other religions. Not didn't used to be that way. We have standards on jewelry, on alcohol, on diet, on things. Other denominations used to have many of these same standards, but they became unpopular in, in order to kind of compromise with the world, just like ancient Rome did, the Church of Rome. They've laid those things aside. And so I tell people, if you're going to play church, go to one of those other churches who have loosened the reins. You're going to play church in the Adventist church. It's going to be a miserable experience because it's going to require a lot more of you. Well, the point is that if it's not in your heart, it's going to be grinding legalism, like the testimony we had in the beginning. Imagine a person growing up in the church. The problem with growing up in the church is that spiritual values are imposed upon you while you're still unconverted. I joined the church. You know, my parents, again, first-generation Seventh-day Adventist. But about the time I hit my teen years, we left the church, and that's probably the hardest time. There's a point when you're younger and you're a little bit more impressionable, and I believe that younger children, the prayers of the parents allow God to work in a way before that child makes a decision to a certain point, but then you get a point in life where it's got to become your decision. You come to an age of accountability, as it were, and I don't have an age limit for that, but the point is... It has to become your own. And if you're growing up in the church and now you're a teenager and you've got all these spiritual rules and you've not chosen Christ, those rules are going to be murder on you. I mean, it's just going to be that heavy drudgery that Ellen White talked about. And very likely the heavy drudgery that many of these folks remember. Let me get there. So the values, say that again, the problem with growing up in the church is that spiritual values are imposed upon you while you're still unconverted. And the carnal heart will always react negatively to spiritual values. Romans 8, 7 says that the carnal mind is not subject to the law, is enmity against the law of God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so if you're carnal, you just, you're always going to be running up against that wall. Thus, pre-conversion it's quite common that a person will feel that he or she isn't good enough. This, I hear this a lot. In fact, as a pastor of an academy church, 
Uh, one of the things that happened while I was there was um, one of the teachers decided to take the witnessing class and turn it into a um, class on just reviewing the gospel with the kids because he had done a survey of the kids and the response was that a lot of them did not have assurance of salvation. Now I can resonate with that. You want to give the kids assurance of salvation, but let me ask you a question. Do you want kids or adults to have assurance of salvation before they've accepted Christ? And, you know, there's this, we're so, assurance is like the word today. And we're just like, oh yeah, you want people to have assurance. What happens if you give a person assurance who's not, assurance of what? Salvation. There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If not, I've not accepted that name yet, what kind of assurance should I have? I want people to have assurance. As a pastor, I want people to have assurance, but I can't. The one thing I don't want you to have is false assurance. God forbid I give you a false assurance to lull you into some kind of secure, carnal security when you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. I tell. I've had this happen with young and old, but that question comes up and people say, oh, I just don't, I just feel like I'm never going to be good enough. And my response to that is always good, accept it. You're not good enough. You say, well, that's so mean. Think about it for a minute. Is anybody ever going to be good enough to be saved? What if I were to lead a person to entertain that idea? then what's salvation based on? At least in part, something in me. No, you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. That's why you need a savior. But here's the good news. He's good enough. So take your eyes off yourself, put them on him, put your trust in him. So it can sound like before I got into all that, I would just say, look, I don't want people to have assurance of salvation if they haven't accepted Jesus. I've got people like, wait a minute. I want my kids to have, and they sound like I'm talking against it, but what I'm trying to say is if you give them assurance before they've accepted Christ, they may never accept Christ. You're, it's a, that kind of assurance is as good as the kind of assurance Tetzel was selling in the days of Luther, right? Sell the indulgence to people. You pay a certain price, you hold on to this indulgence, and now you're, you got a get-out-of-jail-free card, a get-out-of-hell-free card, or whatever he called them. The gospel begins by shattering any of that good enough thinking because a good enough mindset destroys the very premise of the gospel that we are sinners in need of a savior. We'll never be good enough, but he's always going to be good enough. So let's go one step further. Let's say a person grew up Adventist viewing things from that unconverted perspective who later becomes truly converted. So you grew up in the Adventist church and you had those rules imposed upon you and you hadn't given your heart to Christ. And in, in that scenario, then you're feeling like, you know, and different people take it, there are different personalities and what have you. And this is, I understand that there are all kinds of different influences in the church, in the home. I don't want to belittle real issues that people have gone through, but I'm trying to address that regardless the issues that a person goes through, conversion has a way of changing everything. Now, I mentioned to you that in, in the talking points, we go way ahead in talking points in our, in our quarterly. So we, we just, Pastor Cameron and I just finished lesson 12 in the current quarterly on Genesis on the story of Joseph. And it's fascinating to me how easily Joseph could have blamed 
his brothers, his childhood, the dysfunction in his family. And yet he tells his brothers after all that whole thing of them, sell them into slavery and all this. Hey, listen, don't sweat it. God's the one who did it. He worked it out. He had a purpose to work out in that. You guys, you know, are forgiven. How can Joseph do that? And we've got people today who can't forgive the church. The church did this or the church did that. And if it were the case, but I fear. So I'll ask again, what if a person grew up Adventist, viewing things from that unconverted perspective as a child who later becomes converted? Is it possible that as they reflect on their upbringing, they remember it from that unconverted perspective? If you were unconverted and you remember all these rules and don't do this and don't do that, and then I'm not allowed to do anything. Sabbath afternoon is such a boring day and all that. When you think back, your memories are from that perspective. Are they not? Is there not going to be the potential tendency to remember something that may not have even been reality? They remember it from that unconverted perspective, never stopping to consider that the view of the facts may be skewed. It's like visiting a place. If you've ever, any of you ever go back to a place when you were a kid and it could be a house, it could be, you know, grandma's, you know, when I grew up, grandma's basement, we used to go down to grandma's basement, all the kids and we'd play around down there. And then I got older and I went down in the basement. And what do you think was one of my first thoughts, impressions? This is so small. It seemed like a, it seemed like, you know, a, a football field when we were kids and it's just so tiny. My memory had was there from a different perspective. Now maybe maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's the case with some. Regardless, whatever the case, the point I want to make is the problems in our church were not the result of our doctrinal teachings or lifestyle standards. They were the result of the formal religion so prevalent then and now. Our church still has a lot of formalism now. We have the Adventist culture, and you do things because we've always done it this way. And I'll tell you, when you're in pastoral ministry and in conference leadership, you hear more and more of that. Well, this is how we're going to. Why are we doing it that way? First of all, don't ask why. We don't do that. What do you mean why? It's the way we've always done it. All right. Well, maybe the way we've always done it is a good way. But maybe it's not. But there are layers and layers of formalism now as there were then. In fact, I'll challenge you to look up the word, the phrase, respectable conventionality. Ellen White uses it in the book Education. It speaks to this point, this idea of formalism in the church. But the problems in our church were not those doctrinal teachings or lifestyle standards. Why am I making a big deal out of this? When I started in the Seventh Avenue Church, and I was baptized, and I'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow morning. In fact, my wife, my brother Jim, and I were baptized on the same day, and we were not baptized in the Adventist church because we told the pastor, I don't want to be baptized as an Adventist. I'll tell you more about that tomorrow morning, but I will say that the church that I was attending was a, at the time, was geared at winning back the young people and in order to do it, they were downplaying doctrine. They were, were, were downplaying other Christian standards. 
because that's the reason the kids are out of the church, because of these kind of stories. In other words, to, and to this day, folks, that was 30 years ago, nearly, 25, when I came back into the church. And I've sat in committees, and, and so here's the, the, the makeup of the church. In those days, they used to call them celebration churches. And, you know, it was, you know, casual dress. It was, um, you know, very few hymns were sung. Everything was praise songs. Of course, you had a big band, praise team, you know, get the drums and guitars. And because this was going to win back the young people. It was ironic because I came from out of the world, and, I, and I, one of my first impressions of the praise team in the church was that it was a hack imitation of real music that I was used to in the world. And the ironic thing is because I, it, probably because I did have some upbringing in the church before I left the church when I was about 14, 15 years old, I really was looking forward to coming back and hearing hymns because they kind of went with what I wanted church to be as the Lord was drawing me back. And I remember people getting in leadership in the church, getting really irritated when I would ask for hymns because it's like, we don't, we're not, their, their whole point was to get away from traditional Adventism because in their mind, this was the thing that had killed the church and driven the youth off. And to this day, I sit in committees. I sit on our Lake Union executive committee and I hear people pitch some, hey, we got this idea. We're going to go into this area. We're going to try to get the kids back. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start this church. We're going to have more contemporary music. And we're going to have, you know, a breakfast buffet. And we're going to have, and I'm thinking, we've been doing this for 25 years. Are you kidding me? And the reason I say that is because we have been doing it for 25 plus years. And it hasn't made things better, folks. The problems in the church were not the result of our doctrinal teachings or lifestyle standards. They were the result of the formal religion so prevalent then and now. People not studying for themselves, just going along with wherever the culture leads. The church is still full of people who drift through cultural Adventism without ever thinking to make an in-depth, intellectually honest study of the religion and how it measures up to the Bible. Instead of addressing the issue, however, many uh, uh, leaders launched their attack on the doctrines and lifestyle standards of the church, resulting in an Adventism that feels far less constricted than it once did, yet appears further from Christ than it has ever been. The author of that original article says, Seventh-day Adventists may not be as pious as they once were, but I believe they are better Christians. Pious means devout, spiritual. We may not be as spiritual, but we're better Christians, I think. Okay, you're entitled to your thought. So are we better Christians? Adventists used to not go to movies. Now we do. Adventists used to not drink coffee, much less alcohol. Now we do both. Adventists used to not wear jewelry. Now we understand that the Bible just isn't as clear on the subject as we once thought. Besides, it was judgmental of us to make an issue out of it. Adventists used to keep the Sabbath over a 24-hour period. Now Sabbath is pretty much over after church. Adventists used to talk a lot more about prophecy. Now we realize that prophecy scared our young people, so we talk more about grace and assurance and having a personal relationship with Jesus. At the same time, we have fewer baptisms. School enrollments have decreased. Church attendance at all functions, church, Sabbath school, prayer meeting, have decreased. Active involvement in mission and ministry has decreased. And fewer Seventh-day Adventists have regular, consistent devotional lives. 
We may not be as pious, but we sure are better Christians. God help us. While there's still time to be helped, seek the Lord while he is near. Call on him while he may be found, the prophet says. Ironically, the very thing the church did to get rid of the formalism has perpetuated it in the church. And I know this at least in part because as a pastor, as I go around and talk, whether to young and old, there is a spiritual, there is a dearth of spiritual understanding on Bible truths, being able to just explain what we believe from the Bible. As I work in personal ministries department, one of the things I try to do is train people how to give Bible studies. But when you don't study for yourself, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for going out and studying with somebody else. Although I still encourage people to do it. It's one of the best ways to learn. Amen. We'll talk about more tomorrow a little bit. In conclusion, I'd like to share part of a testimony regarding the establishment of the work in Australia and New Zealand. That's what this testimony was about, but I believe it applies with equal force to us today. In fact, it's a great testimony. I'm not going to read. It's hard. Sometimes I find some of these things. I'm like, man, I'll read the whole thing, and then i got to truncate it. But I want to finish with this thought tonight, and then tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, we're going to talk about, what did I call it? The debilitating... Um, drudgery of Adventist doctrine. We're going to talk about in the morning. Doctrine's gotten a bad word. Well, we're going to talk about some things in just that have grown out of formalism. And tomorrow afternoon, we're going to talk about the terrifying tyranny of Adventist eschatology. Last day stuff. Why are so many people so scared about what really should excite us as Seventh-day Adventists? Let me finish with this statement. Ellen White says in this testimony, I can but feel deeply over the indifference of those who have been entrusted with sacred truth. They seem to be blinded in the way they view sin. They cannot see afar off and have forgotten they were purged from their old sins. Why? Because they did not advance in the knowledge of the truth. They did not practice the truth, right? What she's speaking to, the formalism, even then in the church. They were not sanctified through the truth. There is no time to make excuses and blame others for our backslidings. And that's what I feel like we do all the time. It's like, well, the church then, and that's why, and there's a, one thing that, that stands out to me above all others with my personal conversion experience was that for the first time in my life, it became my fault. Like everything in life, you know, you can always point, and I'm, what I mean is just everything. There's always somebody, well, it's because of that or because of this, and I didn't even, And for the first time, I realized that Jesus hung on that cross because of me, not, 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 be, not for me, because of me. I drove the nails into his hands. My sin put him there, not the sin of the world, not everybody else's sin. And I realized it was me personally that he had to die for. And listen to me carefully. You can never have Jesus as a personal savior until you reckon yourself a personal sinner. 
just doesn't, it doesn't land the same way when he, well, he died for everybody. No, he died for your sin, my sin. And, 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 and in that experience, there are things that my parents made mistakes, just like I've made mistakes as a parent. And I called him on plenty of them. But at that point in time, when I was converted, I realized it didn't matter what had happened before. My choices were mine. Jesus was offering himself to me as his savior. And I, if the church today could just go forward in a, and embrace the truths God has entrusted to us, what a difference it would make. There is no time to make excuses and blame others for our backslidings. No time now to flatter the soul that if circumstances had only been more favorable, how much better, how much easier it would be for us to work the works of God. Oh, if things were different, and I would be a better Christian. She says, there's no time now for that. We must tell even those who profess to believe in Christ that they must cease to offend God by sinful excuses. That's all these things are. Jesus has provided for every emergency. If we will walk where he leads the way. He will make the rough places plain. He, with his experience, will create an atmosphere for the soul. Doesn't matter where things have been before. Doesn't matter if we're, we've, been, we've been steeped in formalism in our own experience. If there's somebody even listening tonight or somebody who is watching tonight or somebody later on, if you're listening to this on audio verse and you say, man, that's been me. I've been for, my, my whole experience has been formalism. I've not applied myself. Don't despair. Jesus has provided for every emergency. If we walk where he leads, he'll smooth out those rough places and he'll create an atmosphere where the soul can flourish. You want to live in that atmosphere? You want to have that committed experience with Jesus? Is that your desire this evening? Let's pray together. Father in heaven. Father, as we reflect upon these things and, and we lay a groundwork for this weekend, Father, there are challenges in our church. And I fear, Lord, that we have not made the most of the opportunities we've had. We haven't appreciated the truths that have been entrusted to us. And more than likely, Lord, I'm preaching to the choir here this evening. But there needs to be a revival of a love for Jesus and his truth. And of that expectant excitement at the prospect of his return. I pray, Lord, that you would, through the grace of your son, create that atmosphere in which our souls can prosper. And help us, Lord, to quit cursing the darkness of the past and embrace the light that is shining from your throne. Thank you for hearing and answering, for we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.